Hello, this is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Bibi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. And this is our Halloween episode. Real world news-wise, we are in a total horror show, such a horror show that the CDC has said that trick-or-treating is high risk. <laughs> there go my awesome costume plans. I mean, what's you can't a, do anything I anymore. can't do anything. What's, what's low risk? I mean, it, definitely not watching like any sort of presidential campaigning debate discussion because like, maybe it's technically a COVID-safe pursuit to sit on your couch, um, but I almost imploded screaming with horror watching the first debate. And it seems kind of appropriate that our most horrific holiday is almost the last stop before the election. Look, all of 2020 and all of this campaign has been to me a horror show. I keep waiting for the jump scare when somehow Biden's polling lead evaporates. I'm hoping that that's not going to (laughs) happen. Now I I have to go find wood in my office and knock on it. (laughs) First damn thing every morning I'm checking, right? Um, All right. So are you going to are you going to stay home and watch a movie? Is that what you're going to do? I mean, I guess I could try. I've been, um, as listeners to this show know, I'm a faithful watcher of Lovecraft Country, the last episode of which is coming up. Um, But generally, I'm too chicken shit to watch horror movies and just have to kind of leave the room. I can only really do. We watched Poltergeist the other night, and that was fine. I can do Poltergeist. The the special effects were not scary. It was (laughs) was all. I was was down with Poltergeist. (laughs) That's about as far as I can go. Anyway. We're glued to the news of our horrific times, and so we're going to talk to some people who know about horror and frightening people. We've talked a little bit on this show about what it's like to write humor in the Trump era, but I've been wondering what it's been like to write and publish horror as our headlines grow steadily and steadily more alarming. Today, we'll have a chance to talk to two authors who deal in scares and fear and uneasiness about what it's like to write and publish in this interminable season of election horror. Later in the show, we'll speak with Laura Vandenberg about her new story collection, I Hold a Wolf by the Ears. But first, we're thrilled to welcome Emily M. Danforth to the show. Emily's debut young adult novel, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, came out in 2012 and was named to numerous best book lists, translated into a half dozen languages, and adapted into a Sundance Award-winning feature film of the same name. Emily's second novel, Plain Bad Heroines, launched on Tuesday, two days before this episode's air date. Congratulations, Emily. Emily has an MFA in fiction from the University of Montana and a PhD in English and creative writing from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So it's a special treat for us to have us have you with us in your pub week and in the lead up to the election, which... Uh, has been its own special kind of horror show. <laughs> yeah, like, is this is this thing over yet? Um, your, your book caught my attention because it's a queer gothic horror comedy with meta elements. Um, I'm kind of chicken and I'm not really good with, like, classic horror. Um, and it's a book about a book and about the filming of a movie told in two timelines with illustrations. Um, and it's also told in a very funny voice, which is how I wish 2020 had been told. Um <laughs> And with all of those elements, the opening of the book establishes it as a horror story for and about queer women. It's suspenseful, and a couple of characters die in intriguing ways in the beginning. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you think about the relationship between the real peril, the rights of LGBTQ and other folks have been in lately, and then this genre of horror. 
I mean, I think one thing that as, as a queer person that I'm always thinking about is the ways in which folks that are trying to challenge our, our rights or um, remove them other us. And it's so much the language of monsters, right? It's unnatural, it's sinful, it's perverse, uh, depraved. Um, and I think that's it's something queer people are you know really used to is being completely dehumanized um, and then held up as a thing to fear. It's you know wielded as this weapon of, of fear um, when folks are seeking to to take our rights away. Um, and so I you know that's that's on my mind as a queer person. Um, certainly, it's on my mind right now. But I guess as as it applies to horror, there's like a real specific link linkage between the gothic novel, which is a form I'm really interested in, and the queer monster. You know, so we can go back to Carmilla and think about the lesbian vampire. And one of the ways that queer people I think have related to that literature. Um, is we've reclaimed it, right? So, I mean, it's it's the lesbian vampire isn't the sort of monstrous other anymore. The lesbian vampire is now like an icon. It's like the stuff of 45 memes on an Instagram page. Um, I'm thinking about lurking, obsessed Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca um, and and sort of like how horrifying that portrait is of, of like a, a queer, depraved, obsessed woman. And yet she's now like cool ice queen, Mrs. Danvers, right? Like, in, in like again, an Instagram meme, I've, I mean, my I saw just the other day. Um, and so we have reclaimed a lot of those um, sort of negative portrayals, those othering portrayals. And that's something that I was certainly interested in um, when I was thinking about this book, like how do we reclaim that terrain? And that links to the comedy, I think, too, of the novel. Um, horror and comedy have always been two sides of a coin. And there's something I think that like queer people are really um, at least queer people may be a little bit of my generation. It's, it's, um, we're so used to kind of like using comedy to, in our approach to the world. And it, and it makes so much sense to me in terms of the way that both comedy and horror use tension, um, to pair those things. So I was thinking about all of those things, I guess, in, in, in how I initially thought about the landscape of Plain Bad Heroines. I mean, that mixture of comedy and horror, to me, is this year. Mm. <laughs> I mean, as I watch the president do these insane things that would ha that seem they must be, they're hilarious, right? That when he's getting COVID and running around and saying like, well, I'm going to dress up as Superman. I'm going to pretend like I'm, I'm weak and then I'm going to come out of the hospital and rip off my shirt. I mean, this is comedy. And yet we understand this person, especially for queer people, is, is a horrific figure, right? A very dangerous man. I remember... When he reversed the transgender ban on the on uh, military personnel, which was something that I had written about, um, or he reinstated it, right? Uh, and so, I wonder how you know if that was an an intentional, you know, like is is do you did you feel the way that your book was in its tone, like mimicking this this weird comedy? Or you know, mix that we've been living through. I think you're giving me way too much credit. Although, again, like as a queer person, I think that is just how I've experienced the world. Like since age ten, maybe is is like right. the, the like kind of recognizing the excesses and the and the absurdity, um, while often being in fear of it. But but no, I mean, I I was working on this book for so long, so the fact that it's coming out like right in this moment, like I don't, you know, I, I can't take that credit. Um, that like it maybe matched the tone of the. Oh year. well, we tried to give it um, to you. We'll, we'll let you have it later <laughs> thank if you, you want it back. Thank you. <laughs> Paul Tremblay had a horror novel come out this year and it's about a pandemic, right? And so he was getting a lot of crystal ball credit too. And I think, yeah, it's, it just doesn't work that way, but I appreciate it. <laughs> so your book has its roots in another book from 1902, the story of Mary McLean. 
That's a famous queer memoir, which at the time it came out was regarded as dangerous by many people. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how that book led to yours? There, speaking of actual origins rather than the the Trump administration origin that I was trying to pretend <laughs> happened. <laughs> the credit you gave me. Um, uh, uh, Mary McLean's book is, I think one of the things that's been really sort of fun and surprising to me is that some early readers, because the book is meta, have have in one case, like actually accuse me of making her up. And I want to make very clear on this podcast. I did not invent Mary McLean. I didn't invent her Wikipedia page. I, I don't have those resources. Like she's very real. And if you haven't read her, her memoir that yes, she wrote at the age of 19, which she wanted titled, I await the devil's coming, which is about the best title for a memoir of all time. You can find it. It's been reissued and it's so vibrant and funny um, and smart and just so queer. The voice is so, so queer. And so, yeah, I, I was, and she's also a Montanan and I'm a Montanan and I, um, learned about her, you know, kind of in, in my late twenties and, and was surprised that I hadn't, as someone who has sort of obsessively sought out sapphic narratives from the past, I was surprised that I hadn't heard of her before. Um, and then what I heard about her, and this is something the book really takes up is what a sensation she was, right? That her book sold 80,000 copies in its first month and that she had a drink named after her and a cigar named after her. And, um, the book did the exact thing she wanted it to do was sort of lift her up out of barren Butte, Montana and set her on a world, you know, she world stage. She really wanted fame. Um, so I heard all of this sort of, you know, that, and that she was called a mad woman and, and all these other things I heard about Mary McLean. What I didn't expect is just how, how great the book would be when I finally picked it up and how much I would enjoy her voice and her candor. Um, so I, I feel like more than anything else, the presence of Mary McLean haunts this novel um, in every way. I, I think like her perspective and her refusal to be boxed in and her many contradictions. She's not she's not really a character in the novel. Her book is, um, but she saturates every page of it. So and I, I'm thrilled that like if this book does nothing else, that it will will introduce some readers to Mary McLean who don't know her. Could you? Um read to us some opening scenes from Plain Bad Heroines? Yes, thank you. Um, I think uh, all you need to know uh, for, for the setup of this is, is that we're at the Brookhaunt School for Girls. It's, uh, it's 1902, the fall of 1902, um, and uh, two young women have, uh, who, who are in love and obsessed with Mary McLean's book have just met their very unfortunate um, and due to a, a sort of swarm of yellow jackets. And I'm, I'm sure that seems like a lot, but that, that is the setup to, to this section. That a copy, a much-loved and underlined and page-marked copy, was found near the bodies is undisputed. The story of Mary McLean, the scandalous debut memoir of its namesake 19-year-old, had a deep crimson binding when the dust jacket was removed. A red book was not hard to spot when left almost indecently splayed against a cluster of ferns so enormous they looked like half-opened green parasols. Even in such a gruesome scene, the book stood out. Much was later made of the underlined section it was found opened to. I have lived my 19 years buried in an environment at utter variance with my natural instincts, where my inner life is never touched and my sympathies rarely, if ever, appealed to. I never disclose my real desires or the texture of my soul. Never, that is to say, to anyone except my one friend, the anemone lady. And so every day of my life I am playing a part. I am keeping an immense bundle of things hidden under my cloak. It was no secret on campus how enthralled with that book both Flo and Clara were, and more broadly with Mary McLean herself. 
As you likely already know, they'd formed the Plain Bad Heroine Society as a way to show their devotion. But who brought the book into the trees that day isn't as certain as the fact that a copy was with them in their final moments. Some of the onlookers said Clara was carrying nothing at all on her march from the motor car, while others swore that they saw the book gripped in her hand as she crossed the lawn. Though she'd been seen with it so frequently that school year, it's natural to wonder if they might have imagined that part. It was, after all, the book, the one that brought her and Flo together, the one that said, printed there on the page, the things Clara had once believed were her private thoughts alone. It was the book that Clara so often thought that truly, truly, she could have written herself. She could have had it sewn to her palm and still been unencumbered by it. And if you asked Clara's mother, she would have told you that Clara might as well have had that vile book sewn to her hand for the length of their stay, their summer in Newport, because it had been there day in and day out. Later, when Clara's traveling case was searched, for it had been left there on the ground next to the car where Charles had dumped it, no copy of the story of Mary McLean was found. This would seem to suggest that Clara Brower did take her book with her into the woods that day. It would seem to suggest that except for this. In a letter sent after her daughter's unfortunate death, Mrs. Broward told her sister, in great detail, of the cold comfort she had taken in burning Clara's copy of that hateful book in the flames of her bedroom fireplace. She wrote that she began at page one, tore it free, fed the fire, and continued on until the red binding flapped empty like a mouth with no teeth. And then she burned the empty mouth. Mrs. Broward certainly believed that she did this to the only copy of Mary McLean's memoir that she knew her daughter to have ever owned. Of course, all of this was only spoken of later. Perhaps you already know that when the story of Flo and Clara's deaths reached the press, Mary McLean herself, then staying nearby at a seaside hotel in Massachusetts, was asked to issue a statement. She's reported to have said, I wish I could have known those girls. This was both uncharacteristically short for a Mary McLean statement to the press in those days, and the thing that the two of them, no doubt, would have wanted to hear the most from her. Before we move on, one more thing about that copy of the book found with the bodies. It was handled by faculty and police, Pinkertons, and even Flo's and Clara's bereaved family members, not one of who claimed it as belonging to their kin. And then, not so long after, it was misplaced officially misplaced anyway, lost, unable to be located when it was asked after by reporters who felt sure they'd missed something their first time they'd gone through it and who now wanted another look. Even Principal Libby Brookhans herself could not find it. She was the school's young, if capable, founder. She knew its grounds and buildings better than anyone else left alive, and she told those doubting reporters that she had made a point of looking for the copy in question in every place on campus that it might have conceivably ended up. It simply could not be found. The book was gone. Thank you so much. Um, I love that opening. I was on the edge of my seat with those yellow jackets um, and that trek into the woods. Um, and I looked up the story of Mary McLean and, and was struck by the confident voice of the opening lines. And um you can actually find, you can find, you know, it's, it's in, available in Project Gutenberg and you can see old covers. And as you mentioned, it's been reissued. And Mary McLean, she calls herself charmingly original. And the sentence, I am a genius, is one of the early sentences in the book. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to take a leaf from this in my next work. Um, you know, and like she's 19 years old. She's like, I'm a genius. I'm awesome. Well, my son <laughs> says that all the time. He's 15. I mean, a, a woman in 1902. 
<laughs> I think it's a different thing. But I mean, yes. it's, it's amazing, the voice of that book. I of womankind and of 19 years will now begin to set down as full and frank a portrayal as I am able of myself. Um, and she describes herself just really unabashedly as odd. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I just really um, appreciated being, I'm looking forward to reading the whole thing. Um, I read that some family documents of yours that contain queer personal histories were burned. And that description that you just read with them, the sort of image of the mouth, um, the book is a mouth. And in the passage you read, right, that's Clara Broward's mother burn, burning a copy of McLean's book that belonged to her daughter. How did the strong voice of Mary McLean and people's reactions to it lead to the fictional characters you created your plain bad heroines, um, especially the ones in the modern storyline? Mm. Um, yeah, the book is so fun. So, yeah, it's like, I think you'll enjoy reading it so much. Um, story of Mary McLean, I mean, not my own book. Um, I, I, uh, one thing about the characters in the past, I guess, like I should say that this, this forming of a, of a Mary McLean society, which is what Flo and Clara have done and some other, other students on campus, that was something that happened in the U.S. on the release of Mary McLean's book. There were, there were sort of young women all, the, all over the country that formed clubs in her honor. And so that was one way, just one of the many ways that the book informs the past. I think in terms of the voice of the present characters, um, she's particularly reflected in Merritt, who is the writer who wrote the history of the of the curse of the of the Brookhont School for Girls, um, and who is very self aware and and who I think would would be a little too self aware in sort of a you know a contemporary sense to to maybe call herself a genius, but I think thinks right that she's sometimes the smartest person in the room, um, although has a lot of you know sort of like really deep anxiety too. And I think one of the things that's so interesting again and so feels so fresh about Mary McLean's book is that really perceptive self-analysis she turns right like on her throughout the book um there's this like the real awareness of the things she's creating what she's trying to say and her many contradictions and she'll call herself a genius and by the next page be um you know talking about the barren emptiness of her life and it, it feels like a blog that you could read now right like i mean it really does and so i think some of her voice echoes up in in merit and and how she describes herself or thinks of herself or, or thinks of what she's trying to do i do love that that movement when you're talking about mary mclean and is is that movement between being super overconfident and then having this right hidden part of your life that yeah. she writes about so well it's kind of kind of quite remarkable and i i was only being facetious i mean my 15 year old boy faces none of the challenges that mary mclean was facing sure. in her time period right sure just that there is about there is for all of us i think can recognize and understand that sense of needing to be confident and then having things that we also are not confident about you know mm. and so mm. i found that re relatable in, in any case but um how many books I'm trying to think of books that have like an Easter egged book in it. That's also like reading your book and having you go on tours also about, you know, talking about this other book that they're yeah. sort of connected to. And I, are there other examples of this? Do you know of any? Is this a... <laughs> um, I'm sure there are many. And now I'm like on the spot. I'm not going to be able okay. to think of a single one. So um, no, I'm sure there are many. <laughs> Listeners, if you want to write into us with an example of that, uh, we'd love it. One thing I was thinking about in terms of, of Easter eggs or books within books is just the long tradition in Gothic fiction, in particular, of a, the cursed object that gets passed hand to hand. And that's, in particular, one of the ways that Mary, Mary McLean's book gets used, right? So it, its content is talked about, its effect. 
But this idea, something I was really thinking about was this idea of it as a bad book. What do we mean when we call something a bad book? Um, and that takes on many different forms within the novel. So there's this idea that there is a literal curse perhaps attached to this book, that it is somehow a malevolent object. But also, of course, people are throughout the novel decrying its, its sort of content in terms of morality, right, and, and custom. So I was thinking about books within a book that way, and, and there are plenty of Gothic novels that have used you know, books as, as sort of cursed objects. There is a long literary tradition of doing that. Uh, in your books, uh, modern storyline, a writer and two actresses are preparing to begin making a movie version of the writer's book about Brooke Hans, the school where Clara Broward and her love interest Flo die in the other earlier timeline. Uh, your book shows, I think, how some of the stories we tell about queer women haven't changed. Women are imagined to be catalysts and even sites of horror, as we're sort of talking about here, especially when they are things that they aren't supposed to be bad or plain, as the title says. Can you talk a little bit about this and about deciding to make part of your narrative about the making of a horror film? Sure. Um, I mean, I think one of the things the, the book is doing throughout with this this narrator who's directly addressing the audience, and, and so I heard somebody call it like Gossip Girl meets Victorian direct address, which I think feels exactly right. I think that is the voice of the book. I will I will own that. Um, I think that the, the, one of the things that I'm trying to do is sort of wink at tropes, right? Um, both tropes that involve sort of queer women in lit, but also gothic tropes. Um, and mirroring is certainly one of those, and the time period to do a lot of work with mirroring in terms of, um, um, you know, something in the past commenting on something in the present or vice versa, or there being kind of a refraction of those things. Um, and when I thought about making the, the horror film or the making of a horror film, part of that is just how do stories about queer people get told, right? And who's doing the telling and what are their aims for doing that? And I think particularly once you get, you know, Hollywood involved, there's, you have a lot of questions about like why a story is being told and, and how it's being told. So the, the book is exploring that certainly. Um, it's also a found footage uh, movie that's, that's, that's being made, which of course is a subgenre of horror. But um, I think that gets it like the book tries to explore all these acts of looking, which is, again, you know, a mainstay of gothic fiction. So characters are often sort of lurking and they and they observe something they shouldn't see or maybe they're, it's much more voyeuristic than that. Um, but there's all these acts of sort of characters witnessing things and other characters don't know that they have and who has that information. And the idea of making this found footage film, which purports to have right, true footage, um, is another act of looking. It's another way of seeing these characters. And so that's, I think, another sort of gothic meta element that that works throughout. The movie that I was probably most scared of watching in my life other than Jordan Peele was The Ring, which has mm. a cursed object in it, which is Absolutely. a film. And then, um, you know... My, I remember a friend coming back to my apartment, finding me crouched on the couch with my fingers over my face, unable to take the tape out of the VCR. Mm. Um, oh, you watched it on a tape. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> big mistake. Big mistake. Bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> don't, yeah, don't do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like there's, there is so much interesting, um, like, yeah, the meta commentary, like, and it's like, there's, I don't want to spoil this, but like, there's like the director plays a very specific role. Um, with his relationship to the film. And yeah, there are these sort of constant, yeah, there's the seeing of things and like, did I see that? You know, which is also always this question of horror, which I also like sort of think of in relation to our current times, like where I think for the first time, like, like I'm engaged in this constant gaslighting of myself, which is, mm. I mean, which, I mean, I, I think like probably I have varieties of that habit anyway, but like, especially now it's a little bit like, did I actually yeah. see that ludicrous thing happen? Absolutely. 
Yes, I like that. I mean, I don't know. It's I don't like that you're that you would feel that you're can't constantly gaslighting yourself. But I like that phrase because I feel that too, and I feel like that these are the conversations I'm having via text with my friends all the time. It's it's you know I've created this like fictional world of horrors, but it's like the real world is a, a world of fictional horrors, right? Like all the time we're being lied to, and we know it, and we're you know, and I, so I feel exactly that way. That level of disinformation, I think, is somehow connected to like the the fact that horror has been having a huge resurgence. I mean, I don't think, I mean, I grew up in the 80s. I don't feel like, I feel like the only horror writer who was getting any sort of attention then was Stephen King. I don't feel like there was this wide array of people writing in this, uh, in that genre in the way that there is now. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not a great student. Yeah. I mean, I think like 70s and 80s were like the era of like particularly like straight to paperback horror. Mm -hmm. So, um, so like maybe in terms of like big kind of like critical reception, but I I think there were a number of, of, of like horror writers, uh, doing their thing. I I don't know if you know the, the work of Michael McDowell. Um, he was a gay horror writer that was, I think Stephen King called him like the king of the paper, the paperback horror, um, horror. And, um, he wrote, he would probably be most known now for writing, um, like, the screenplay for Beetlejuice. So again, somebody that liked horror and comedy. Yeah, very cool guy. But he has this great Southern Gothic horror um, called The Elementals. It will make you fear sand. I don't know how he did it, but you will, yeah, fear sand. And so... And he talked a lot. I mean, you can't find that many interviews with him, but he talked a lot about sort of being, you know, in the 80s, a gay male horror writer and, and, um, you know, postulating essentially the monstrous, which I think is a thing that horror writers have always done um, because it's a way that we can control the things we fear, right? Like if we make it into a monster, then, then that's like, I can close the book and I can say, it's not, it's not all these other systems of oppression. It's this curse, right? It's the curse of, of Brocant. So yeah. Anyway, he's, he's a fascinating guy and, and he was certainly writing at that time. I'll have to look him up. I had a friend yeah. who I, um, when I was in grad school for creative writing, a friend who was collecting kind of like pulp um, novels from that era. And they had these covers that are right. Also sort of yes. like, like old school movie posters, you know, yes. um, like a, like a, a bosomy housewife escaping her like cruel husband yeah. and like, you know, but really what she wants is to be in a torrid affair with her <laughs> lady neighbor. Right. And I would like, they're, you know, they're her lady neighbor. <laughs> I mean, like, this is, I'm, sp- I'm spitballing one. Like, this is, <laughs> no, 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 they, they had, you know, like many, many more adventurous plots than this. Um, but yeah. yeah, they would often have this kind of like visual language of horror embedded in like the cover and then like in the language, like I would, it was so fun to look through her collection of pulp novels. You would probably really enjoy a book that came out maybe last year or the year before. It's so fun. It's Grady Hendrix's Paperbacks from Hell. Oh. And that's what it is. It's this beautiful coffee, coffee table book of those books, uh, like all their covers and then descriptions of them. And it's so, it's so, it's so great. So if you like that, yeah, Paperbacks from Hell is the book for you. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I'm yeah, definitely yeah. going to have to um, pick that up. And so like we're talking about all these real books, real objects. And so, of course, you know, as I was reading your book, I was like, is Brookhans real? <laughs> and then I was like, surely Brookhans is real. And then I kind of like went on a little, you know, and I was like, no, is there, is Brookhans modeled on something? Is Brookhans, and it's got this great name, right? Like the haunt is almost like right in there. And, um, and it's this, this, can you talk a little bit about inventing that place? Sure. I mean, as a lesbian, <laughs> I have long 
unintelligently uh, romanticized boarding schools. I think just like uh, like as a, a lesbian of my era, I think that you know there's there's just too much kind of like in in literature and in pop culture to not do so. And I know that if I had gone to a boarding school, I would not feel that way. Um, but there's too much in the terrain, and and I and, and obviously again writing a gothic novel, the idea of having a, an abandoned cursed boarding school felt really right. I didn't want to write about it like a present day occupied like you know. Uh, boarding school, but an abandoned one felt right to me. Um, and so Brookhunts really came out of me trying to solve the, the question of, I had this idea for a location. I live in Rhode Island. There's, there's plenty of sort of, you know, New England Gothic atmosphere around me, but I was trying to figure out like, why is this, this boarding school cursed? Like, where, where did that curse come from? Um, and, and you're absolutely right. Brookhunts is not real. Um, but some of the pieces of that estate, like the larger Brookhunts estate are drawn from Rhode Island history. Um, there's a tower in the book, the, the manor house with a tower. It's called Spite Tower. That's real. That's in Little Compton, um, Rhode Island, and it's called Spite Tower. And all of its history is apocryphal. But it supposedly, it's it, you know, the stories are much better than the truth. I think it was built as a ultimately as like a pump house for a well. Um, but it's this strange sort of tower. Um, that you know sits on the side of a road, and the story is that um, feuding farmers, uh, one built it to block the other one's view, um, and so yeah, I you know I, I sort of picked that up and used it, and then the, the house that it's attached to is also a, an actual location in, in in Little Compton. So I think the book is full of things like that, and it's interesting to me the stuff that people think I've made up, like Mary McLean, that's very real versus, you know, the things that are entirely fictional. Yeah. You know, I was, um, for a year after I graduated from career writing school, like was the writer in residence at a boarding school and then later lived in an apartment building in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that was an abandoned women's boarding school. Oh my gosh. Um, and so like reading your book, I was like, oh my God, this is, (laughs) this is exactly, you know, that the acres of woods behind the school, like this is how this feels. Um, yeah. I mean, I used to live in an apartment building that had formerly been Miss Clark's Seminary for Young Ladies. And it felt, oh like, it felt like being in, on the set of The Others, <laughs> which was also a movie I couldn't watch. Um, and and so, like, you know, here are all these, we have all these, um, you know, fantasies about, like, what boarding school is like. Um, and I think, you know, as we read the news now, it's very obvious that there's, like, another set of fantasies operating for a different set of people. Now, as I was reading, I was thinking about these places I had been and lived, and I was also kind of watching out of the corner of my eye, uh, another horror movie I can just barely stand to see, the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings. Oh. Um, and, you know, like, I was seeing, like, a lot of my friends, you know, one of those moments of, is this actually what's happening? People texting each other. They're talking about her children and how her being a mother has qualified her to be to be a leader. Have you ever seen this discussed in this way um, for, you know, a, a male candidate for the Supreme Court, you know, the Supreme, this Republican senator is celebrating her motherhood, her very appropriate performance of like straight Christian womanhood. Um, and so she is a major worry of mine, like no. that I'm having, you know, we're taping this on the Friday before the episode comes out. Uh, and I guess we'll know a variety of things, um, are, are the plot of our lives moving at the pace of a scandal episode. So she's mm-hmm. my, my big worry. What are your big fears these days and what's your what's your big any big hopes for us going forward yeah i i mean i agree i i've also only been able to tune into that confirmation hearing as as the horror show like i've been watching it in the same way like through through my hands basically and in in bites 
Um, I mean, I, I think it's impossible to be alive right now and not be fearful of the pandemic and all of really like it, all of the, um, the ways it's acting upon the world. Right. So like the virus itself and like our uncertainty about that and all of the deaths, um, which, you know, it just feels like it's a kind of a ticker box on the bottom of a screen sometimes, but also the, you know, significant sort of increase in um, uh, poverty and, uh, you know, folks um, needing to go to food lines and, and, I mean, just all the kind of uncertainty um, I see, you know, in my nieces and nephews that were not in college this year and um, around me. So I'm, I'm thinking a lot about that. Like, what, what does this look like? And I think, again, when we talk about horror, um, it's that uncertainty, right? Like in this sense of kind of like just continued doom and dread. So yeah, I mean, I would have to answer, I think the pandemic, it's, it's, a, it's a huge fear and what our response hasn't looked like and when we're going to be able to kind of look at it in the rear view. Well, if we want people to be watching something, it should be, or paying attention to something, they should be paying attention to your book, Plain Bad Heroine. So we're going to suggest and remind our readers to go out and pick that up. And we're going to congratulate you on the book's debut coming out right now. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. And next up, we're joined by Laura Vandenberg. Laura is the author of two previous collections, The Isle of Youth and What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us and the novels Find Me and The Third Hotel. The Third Hotel was finalist for the Young Lions Fiction Award, which I want to say I was on, I, I'm was i a reader on the committee for that award, and I thought it was a very deserving finalist, and I was happy that that happened. Uh, an indie next pick, a pal's book's indispensable pick, and named a best book of 2018 by over a dozen publications. Laura's stories have been anthologized in The Best American Stories, The Best American Mystery Stories, The O. Henry Prize Stories, The Best American Non-Required Reading, her most recent collection, I Hold a Wolf by the Ears, was published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in July and named a best summer read by the New York Times, Times Magazine, Esquire, Harper's Bazaar, and Entertainment Weekly, among others. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you both. Laura, the election, the pandemic, we just, you know, start off light. Police violence, white militia violence, all things we've been chronicling here at the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast have made 2020 uh, really the most 20 terrifying year that I personally have lived through. And as a writer whose fiction is designed to make people at best uneasy and at worst terrified, what was the most perfectly crafted jump scare moment of the year for you? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many, <laughs> so many from which to choose. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's been one of the most terrifying years that I've lived through also. And it's just, it has been so unrelenting to, in so many different ways. Um, this maybe, you know, isn't, I mean, I think when we think of a jump scare, we think of something that's really sudden um, or that it kind of comes out of the blue. And, and this was maybe more of a, a, a kind of creeping horror, but I do like really remember um, very vividly this sort of period of time, maybe like a handful of weeks, it's sort of in February when the pandemic went from being um, maybe sort of a, an increasingly um, urgent, you know, um, buzz on the periphery of our lives to really being front and center. Um, and it feels like a lifetime ago when folks were arguing about whether or not AWP should happen. Like, I can't believe that that's 
feels like, right, like that had to have been at least 10 years ago. Um, but I, there was a very specific moment. So it, this earlier this year, my husband and I were living in Austin, Texas, and we were teaching there and, um, and we drove uh, in the first week of March um, to Florida where my family is and we have remained there ever since. And I just remember being in the car, I think we were driving through um, Mississippi and we were, it was late, late at night we're just trying to keep going, keep going, um, and to stop as little as possible. And we were listening to the radio, which was not something we normally do in the car, but, um, you know, we were just trying to keep abreast of the news as much as possible. And I just remember having this moment, I just felt like, yeah, we were in this kind of like the little like planet of our car, um, on this, on this quiet, um, you know, highway late, late at night driving through America, but just this moment where I, I thought like something fundamental has shifted in our world um, and I don't know that our lives will ever be the same again. Um, and it was this sort of like really sharp feeling of um, disaster and loss um, before, you know, we had all the context and the information that we have now. But I think when I think of, of yeah, of, of, of again, <laughs> we, the podcast for many many hours you know I could I there's certainly others that that come to mind but um but that's a moment that was really distinct for me just that feeling that yeah like some kind of um sort of irrevocable turn has happened and the world as we once knew it is gone or or partly gone I, I feel like there's been a, f a series of steps like that like well it this will never happen. Then that happens. Then you're just like, okay, well, I can still do this. I can, I can get through. And like, you have a series of sort of acceptances that lead you to, it's like a little bit like the frog boiling, you know, metaphor, right? Like suddenly you're living in a situation that's, it would have been unimaginable to you six months to one, six months earlier. I feel that way. Sometimes that's how your stories work. Like suddenly the characters ends up, ends up in places where they would not have imagined themselves to be. And yet the question is how they got there. Um, one of the things that made 2020, I mean, I'll, I'll, one of these things that we sort of slowly descended our way into in 2020 was this sort of what I feel like is a sort of undisguised death impulse among Trump's followers. You know, I think we have a president who's really interested in death. And so are the people who are interested in him in a, in a bizarre way. Um, you know, you see that in the refusal of masks and these big rallies and the fact that the president himself probably nearly died in the last few weeks. Um, you have militia groups wanting to kidnap governors of states, you know, so much of this uneasy confrontation with, for lack of a better term, the forces of death comes out and is echoed in your collection. I hold a wolf by the ears, even the title, right? Sounds a lot like 2020. Um, but you, you didn't write all these stories in 2020, or at least maybe none of them, you know? So when did you write them and how do they end up feeling so predictive of this time? Yeah, well, I didn't, I mean, I, of course I did not write them this year, but most were written um, uh, post 2016 election. Volcano House is the oldest story in the collection. And that story was written, I think in um, 2011. Um, but I wrote, I think, four or five of the stories, so a little less than half the book, at a at a residency in 2018, 
Um, the majority of the stories were written, say, between 2016 and 2018. Volcano House is actually kind of an outlier um, in terms of its 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 relative age um, compared to the others. So uh, so they weren't written, you know, in our literal now, but but they were written pretty close to our now. Um, and and yeah, it was you know very alert to be sort of working in a um, a post Trump. Uh, world. So you mentioned Volcano House. Um, I'd love to talk specifically about that story, which is narrated by a woman whose sister is shot and sent into a coma by a mass shooter named John Evans. And the narrator says, um, and I'm quoting here, "I, I just want John Evans and all his kind eradicated from this earth. And at the same time, I know it's not so easy that such an eradication would be meaningless if we can't cut out the roots. And I mean, look, you know, I'm feeling in my like maybe not so secret heart this exact way about a lot of people in America right now. Um, but if Biden wins this election, what are the roots that should be cut out? Yeah, I mean, that's such a powerful question um, to sit with. I am, you know, hope, hoping and, and working and um, desperate uh, for Biden to to win um, the election in just a couple of weeks. But I, you know, certainly, I mean, we we had the, the sort of... Um, entrenched, um, unequal and violent structures of this country did not start with Trump, right? Like he didn't make them. Um, he's just sort of intensified them and, and figured out how to wield them in an even more violent way. Um, and they, you know, and Biden will not, um, fix them. I mean, he is, he has been a part of creating those structures. Um, and that's not the only thing that he's done, but but you know he um, his record on um, you know he's been accused of sexual assault. His record on race is is troubling. Um, I despite all of this, I will vote for him. I think it's really painful, you know, for a lot of us to feel like we are in this position where these are our you know these are these are our choices. But the ills of this country are of course far larger than any individual candidate, right? And um, I mean, I think we're really seeing that just to sort of think about like one strand um, of an inequitable and, and violent structure. I mean, policing comes to mind straight away. Um, and policing, I feel in this country is so powerfully broken and it's beyond reform and beyond modification. Um, and I, I support the, you know, the defund, um, the defund movement in the various ways that it's working and trying to have a, a conversation about how policing in America needs to be completely um, reimagined and reshaped. And, and I think until like those kinds of structures, you know, shift in a really powerful way, um, you know, it's it's the work that lies ahead is far beyond like any individual candidate. And I think the nature of a politician and particularly like a centrist politician is just kind of holding on to power. Right. And, and I think if that is your your sort of position or your kind of primary goal, you know, it's, I think it makes it very difficult to be transformative. Um, because to be transformative means to take risks that are new and different um, and that might not be, you know, sort of immediately um, palatable to all voters. I mean, I think the Democratic Party, there seems to be this deep anxiety um, in the larger party structure about anything being, you know, like too extreme, too socialist, etc. We end up, you know, in still in this kind of centrist space. If we're thinking about Trump, it's like it's like harm reduction. It's certainly not nearly as damaging. Um, 
um, and as chaotic as a Trump president, but it's not. It's also not healing the country either, and it's not transforming what's broken. Um, and it's. I don't know that it will bring us into a space of greater justice and equity. So yeah. So I think when I think about like the cutting out and what is being cut out, um, it's less about like an individual like cutting out Trump and more about um, transforming uh, oppressive structures. One of my favorite stories in this collection is lizards. Um which has a Kavanaugh reference in it. Uh, so that fits with you having written it post-2016. I'm not going to spoil the ending of the story, which is quite remarkable, but it has to do with a couple who both seem, who both seem to be like well-meaning people, general speaking, and yet the Kavanaugh hearing set off this atavistic reaction sort of in their psyches, particularly the husband. I wonder if you could read us a section from that. This story... Um takes place uh, in in the midst of the Kavanaugh hearings um, and a husband, just to give a little context, because I'm gonna start kind of closer, um, around in, maybe in the middle of the story. And um, the husband, a husband and wife, um, are in a apartment complex in Florida and they are doing the dishes and they start talking. Um, and then they start arguing. Uh, and the argument is sort of um, paused when the husband offers his wife um, like, a, like a LaCroix style seltzer. Um, but the, the sort of twist is, is that it's this like artisanal seltzer that he's been getting from another husband in the apartment complex and it's uh, laced with sedatives. So when his wife drinks it, she, she goes to, she goes to sleep. Of course, she has noticed a correlation between drinking the sparkling water with a mysterious label she could never find anywhere else and being seized by a narcoleptic longing for sleep. She believes the story about the family friend, even if making small batch artisanal water does seem like a curious way to spend one's time. But she likes the word artisanal, thinks it sounds aspirational, and also the water is just so refreshing. Lately, though, she started to get an icy feeling in her stomach whenever her husband hands her a can, and at the same time, for reasons she cannot articulate to herself, she feels compelled to accept his offering as though they have entered into an agreement she doesn't quite understand. Also, there is the problem of how her sleep has changed. After drinking the water, she used to wake feeling as though she had slept for a hundred years, like a character in a fairy tale. But recently she has been coming to in the middle of the night, upright in the shower or in the kitchen, her head stuck in the arctic glow of the freezer, even though she has no history of sleepwalking. Her husband, always a sound sleeper, has yet to notice. Still, she wants this life, she really does, even if she has to admit that ever since the judge entered into the news cycle, something inside her has been disturbed. The women who have come forward, they are so relatable. One of them looks like just like her Aunt Karen. So she wants to stand up. She wants to do something. If only she weren't so tired, she should go to a march. Instead, she has started shouting at the drivers who cut her off in traffic and snapping at coworkers and picking fights with her poor husband, who is trying his best, she supposes, to navigate these new currents. The truth is, is that she is angriest at her own anger, which she suspects has arrived far too late to be of any real use. She has been kept too safe, been too protected for too long. Besides, if she squints at the label, the can just looks like a LaCroix. 
This is what I need, she thinks as she sinks into bed. This is what the world needs. Sleep is holy. Maybe our problems would be solved if everyone just got more sleep. Isn't that what the woman from the Huffington Post has been trying to tell us? She drifts away, listening to her husband bang around in the kitchen, his movements a dim echo through the wall. The last time he bought a flat of cans from his neighbor in a remote corner of one of the complex's many parking lots, the neighbor asked if he was taking full advantage of his new marital situation. He frowned and said he didn't know what that was supposed to mean, and then the neighbor told him that when his wife drinks a full can, you can't wake her up for the end of the world. Call me twisted, his neighbor said, but it makes me feel like a ghost like I'm walking through walls while everyone else is still using doors. The neighbor's confession was twisted. He assures himself in the kitchen. Why would anyone want to be a ghost? In the parking lot, he yanked the flat from his neighbor's arms and hurried away. But now that the notion is in his head, he can't scrub it out, especially when she kicks away the covers and he spots a smooth thigh all twisted up in the sheets. Sometimes he wonders what would happen if everyone were to one day stop pretending and he feels afraid. Thank you so much. Um, what I find so compelling and fascinating in that story is the way that the wife is aware of, but chooses to ignore the way her husband is manipulating her. And all of us on the left believe that we virtuously resisted Trump and the forces of Trumpism long before Trump ever ran for office. But as you were saying before, like maybe we didn't. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one thing I was thinking about with a wife, like on the one hand, what her husband is doing to her is like monstrous, right? And unforgivable. So she is his victim unambiguously. Um, but I, I wanted to sort of complicate a simplistic one-to-one dynamic of she is, um, you know, like a, like a, yeah, a virtuous woman who has fallen into the clutches of this terrible man and to try and create, you know, a landscape of relationship that was a little bit more complex than that. And one thing that I was thinking about a lot with the wife's character, I mean, I think both of these characters would identify as, um, as liberals or at least as Democrats. Um, they would likely be Biden voters, the husband remarks in, in a way to sort of like justify what he's doing, you know, recalls that he wore a deal me in um, t-shirt to the polls on election day. So we know he's not, you know, he's not a Trumper. Um, and yet he harbors this really like incredibly powerful misogyny that's been been leaking out um, over the course of the Kavanaugh trials. But I was thinking, you know, with the wife, I think what for me was was ultimately really interesting and compelling about her character is that she is aware that something is going on um, with with this um, seltzer water situation. But there's a part of her that really craves that obliteration. There's a part of her that craves the permission to look away and to turn away and to not engage. Um, she, he's trying to talk himself into the ways that he's like not a misogynist. Like, I can't be, I voted for Hillary. Um, and she's trying to, I think, talk herself, you know, into into still wanting a life with this particular person. Um, but when you think about, you know, with her character, like what would she be willing to give up in her own life to make um, a person like Kavanaugh uh, and his ascension to the Supreme Court less possible? And my sense of her in this moment of time is like not that much, you know? Um, so she's sort of a flame with anger but it's this sort of it's this kind of useless churning anger you know it's not an anger that's necessarily compelling her to re-examine um 
the the world and her sort of position in it. Yeah, when she says she wants this life, right? Uh, I thought that was important, you know, part of that story. There's a lot there about class as well, right? That the artifice and performance of class structures. Absolutely. And, and, and a certain kind of politics being part of that artifice, but not really um, engaged or examined. Well, I feel like I walked through it. We're, we're going to get to the husband in a minute, who's also who's the real bad guy here. So we're not all taking this out on the wife in this story. But, you know, I walked through my like upper middle class urban suburb, right, that I live in and, and, and see women who have Biden signs in the front yard. But they also like have worked extremely hard at getting their hair dyed exactly a certain way. They've gone to a ton of weight classes. They're wearing really expensive workout gear. They're, they're, they've like made themselves into a picture right? For a certain kind of structure of society that has to do with the male gaze, right? And I think like, and they're at, when, when, when that line is spoken in the story, I think of, I think of women that I see that I think, imagine like, well, I want this life, right? But they're, they're, they're doing something that is also harmful to them at the same time that they're by wanting that life. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. I mean, I think that that's, yeah, I mean, there is some, there is that sense of like striving in the wife's character, you know, we, we feel as though we're kind of on our way somewhere, and we don't want to, you know, do anything to upset that, um, upset that trajectory. Um, I think that that's, yeah, definitely, definitely true for her. So I think in, in you know, this idea of being sort of asleep um, is manifesting in her life in, in several different ways. Like on the one hand, she's being literally drugged by her husband, um, but also there's this kind of like willful um, sleepfulness that she has entered into in terms of like not looking at anything in her life and her choices um, too, too carefully, lest they reveal uh, a reality that feels um, untenable. So can we go back to the last line of that reading? Sometimes he wonders what would happen if everyone were to one day stop pretending and he feels afraid. What do you think that <laughs> would mean for everyone to stop pretending? Yeah, well, um, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure what it would mean for, for yeah, for, for, for everyone. Um, but I think in this case, you know, there's this sort of like very thin veneer of civility um, that the husband is is sort of operating under, right? Like the husband who sells this lease, sells their water to other husbands in the apartment complex, like he's much more crass and more vulgar. Um, and we see that in other places in the story. And so it's sort of like, oh yeah, like I'm not that guy. I can't be that guy. And yet in his, and you know, this is this sort of beautiful and terrifying thing that fiction can give us access to is the innermost thoughts of, of characters, right? Like the things that they would never say aloud. And yet, I mean, what we think is a part of who we are um, and where we allow sort of the mind to go. So on the one hand, the husband is like, look, I wore a deal me in t-shirt to the polls and I'm not like crass, like this has this other husband, like what more do you want from me? And on the other, you know, he is like, there is a part of him that is entertaining the idea of like drugging and raping his wife um, because it, it's a, it's a possibility that is like available to him now in a way that it wasn't. And he's starting to feel the sort of like temptation of that. Um, so, you know, so that's a, that's a, that's a pretty, like, I think like deep well of horror, um, you know, underneath that, that sort of veneer of civility um, for, for the husband. And I think, um, you know, I don't think of these stories as 
horror stories per se, but I am really interested in horror as a form. And these stories certainly occupy, um, you know, the landscape of like the uncanny and the haunted. Um, and I do, but I do think sort of horror is a form and the ghost story is a form. It really is so much about very oftentimes tearing away that superficial layer, tearing away the mask that a person sort of walks around with and really getting into the kind of like gnarly heart, um, often frightening heart um, that is sort of underneath all of that all of that. I mean, there's so many examples, um, both in like literature and film um, of, of horror narratives that 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 do that work so powerfully. So um, speaking of, you know, all of these examples, last year around this time, we were talking for our Halloween episode with Victor Laval and, and Ben Percy about the rebirth of horror writing as a form of social critique. And you've just said you don't exactly think of these stories as horror stories. And yet I still think, um, right, your stories are advancing social critique. Um, in ways that remind me or call to mind certainly things like uh, like Jordan Peele's Get Out or Lovecraft Country or what Victor or Ben are doing. And I'm curious about what some of your early influences in thinking about how to include social critique um, in those explorations of the uncanny or the kind of tearing off of the mask. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Get Out is like, that's an amazing example of that idea of like, you know, you think about that family, right? And it's like, you know, they're right. They look like they would have their Biden sign out in the yard and um and, and probably and um you know maybe they'd even make a few phone calls but like yeah you you get you get past that that sort of performance of like you know liberal civility and and it's a it's a it's a nightmare um <laughs> underneath um yeah i you know a collection that was really important to me while working on this book was um, Mariana Enriquez's collection, Things We Lost in the Fire, which is such an amazing collection of short stories. Um, I do think of many of those stories as being ghost stories um, that work in and with um, hauntedness, and they're all set in contemporary Buenos Aires. Um, and I think that they are particularly around landscape architecture. Um, I'm really interested in writing place and landscape is very important to me. Um, and, and spaces that are spaces that are empty in a city and spaces that are occupied with people and the sort of like delineations between neighborhoods and that sort of like ever shifting, you know, landscape of, of a city and, and the way that that landscape shifts throughout history. Um, and, and I think her work does, you know, a beautiful, um, frightening uh, job of exposing the sort of like unexamined um, dimensions of landscape and the unexamined um, questions and using this, this sort of the presence of the supernatural or possibly supernatural, um, the fantastic as a kind of instrument of pressure to like really crack that artifice open and see what is, um, yeah, lurking, lurking underneath. And I love, I mean, I, I love, um, Victor's work too, and Ben. Um, I'm big fans of both those those writers. Well, you're speaking of landscape. A lot of these stories, not all of them, but a lot of them are set in Florida, and a lot of your other stories from the the past have been set there. You're from there, and now I guess, as you were telling us at the beginning of the podcast, you're back there again. Um, maybe you could give us, as we close out here, like an uh, election update. I check every day on five thirty eight and Real Clear Politics to see how Florida is polling. I just read something that like in slate like today that they that like they started taking away ballot boxes in a totally illegal move that that the mm -hmm. Republican party is just 
doing to see if anyone can stop them from doing it? I mean, what's going on down there? Yeah, I mean, that's it. Yes, there, <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot going down here. I actually, Trump had his first um, COVID rally. I'm in Sanford, Florida, and he had his, his first COVID rally at the airport. Um, so so we were just like, yeah, in, inundated by all things Trump for about 24 hours. And it was a very, yeah, it was a, a very fat, bad vibe. Um, uh, so Central Florida is is a is a really critical part of the state. Um, so for those of you who, who aren't necessarily familiar with the geography of Central Florida, I'm like basically between Orlando and Daytona Beach. Um, so about a, a little, uh, you know, 30 minutes, I'll 45 minutes outside of Orlando and a little bit closer to the coast. Um, and this is really like Florida is a swing state. We all we all know, we all know this. Um, and but uh, this is central Florida, the I-4 corridor, which kind of goes from like Daytona Beach to Tampa. That That is like the swing of the swing. Um, this is where the most uh, allegedly undecided voters are situated. Um, and the, these are kind of the counties that are up for grabs. Um, North Florida, speaking broadly, tends to be sort of more of a Republican stronghold. South Florida um, gets gets bluer. Um, again, not all of South Florida. There are some exceptions, but just speaking broadly. Um, and then Central Florida is like really more of a patchwork. So there's a lot of activity down here. Um, there is a, a volunteer um, Biden office like right downtown, which is so great. Um, that has been open and staffed with volunteers. And I've started doing shifts there. And it's great to, um, yeah, talk to voters and prospective voters and like give out yard signs. And um, and it's really like, it's been sort of surprisingly like joyful. And yeah, I, you know, in this, in like our little sort of the town kind of bubble, I mean, we're in a blue leaning town. If you walked around, when I walk my dog, I see far more Biden signs than I do see Trump signs. Um, there are a lot of ruler areas around us that tend to be um, a little bit redder. Um, but but again, it's like we are all kind of mixed together here. So in my in my life before the pandemic, I lived in Cambridge, Mass. And it's like, you know, I think I've seen one Trump sign in all, like all of Cambridge and Somerville um, for the last election. So, I mean, that is, um, you know, more of a blue bubble in terms of how people are voting. It, this is a very different experience. Um, you know, we have a lot of people of different political perspectives sort of mixed together, um, functioning as as neighbors and community members um, but I'm glad to I mean I'm glad to be here for the election I mean I in some ways I would I would much rather be here um, than in Massachusetts because I do feel like it's you know it's 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 possible to be part of kind of a communal effort that can have um, you know a more of a tangible impact on the the outcome of the of the election so I've been text banking Florida voters and writing letters to Florida voters and just saying you know from one Floridian to another um, let's um yeah let's let's talk I'm glad to hear that that's joyful work I mean, not always, but but the the yeah, most people don't come into the Biden office if they just want to say, like, go fuck yourself. Although occasionally people do. I'm just worried the Republican governor and, and political establishment are going to try to steal the election in some and by doing various uh, things that are uh, uh, illegal and unfair. Yeah, I mean, DeSantis is like a terrible governor. He's been awful through COVID and he 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 lies. Um so I think that that, yeah, that is a real concern. And I mean, I think going back to the earlier question about Volcano House and like what 
what needs to be sort of, you know, cut out. I mean, there are now so many obstacles to like a, a, a like free and fair election, um, which is something I think as Americans, we, or at least speaking for myself, it was something that I didn't feel like, you know, I needed to, um, to worry about as much as I have in the last like four or five years. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of um, nefarious business going on with election interference and voter suppression and creating obstacles um, for people to vote. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, that is that is sort of like a like a deep, deep concern. So kind of in the same vein, this is our last episode before the election and, and stories like yours are, are, as you mentioned, supposed to express things that we don't say in public, including fears. Um, so assume Trump loses, because at least I mean, my greatest fear is that he wins. Um, but if he loses, what is, or rather, if he wins, what is your deepest, darkest fear for November 3rd? I think right now my most pressing fear is that he, he wins. Um, and and just the, the dismantling of our democratic structures um, is you know, that will occur over the next four years um, is, is and just like, what what kind of country will we be left with a democracy after that? Um, I mean, I think that that's my, my like, no, yeah, maybe like number one worst fear. And so if he loses, then what are we afraid of? Yeah, well, I mean, if he loses, I, I'm fearful that he will not accept a peaceful transfer of power. Um, I'm, I'm fearful of, I mean, with the situation with the attempted kidnapping, um, of Michigan's governor, right? Like, I mean, I'm fearful that we're going to see more things like that. Like, there's going to be resistance from like right wing militias. I'm sure we have plenty of them around. You know, you know, not too far afield from where from where I am. He cultivates violence in his supporters, and he encourages violence. Um, and he um, he treats violence as a as an acceptable um, avenue for not being happy about something and it's a completely different thing from you know protest and encouraging protest and resistance which i'm sure you know we we all um support um but he encourages real like person-to-person um violence um among his supporters and yeah i'm really fearful about i mean i'm fearful of that how that would be unleashed if he wins or if he loses um so i think you know i think we're going to be in this place of kind of triage for a long time even if biden does win laura thank you very much for joining us we're going to encourage our listeners to pick up i hold a wolf by the ears or any of laura's books and it was great to talk with you yeah it's a real pleasure to have you with us Thank you both so much for having me. I felt like it was cathartic to get to talk about some of my election, my election anxieties. Um, so thank you both so much. That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode was produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. And we want to thank our University of Missouri, Kansas City interns, Mary Hen and Emily Stanley for their work on this episode. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please, go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We also love it when listeners post about the show on social media. Tag us and we'll respond. You can listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction nonfiction podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. 
You can find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel. And we'll provide links to all of this in the show notes, and we'll be tweeting and posting about the episode during the week. Happy reading, and make sure you're registered to vote, and that you do vote.